Hi everyone, I'm Sarah and this is How To Be Good, the podcast that explores what it means to be a good person in today's world. Today I'm talking with Taoist monk Yun Ro. But in its essence, Taoism is a science, not a belief system. It's a method for looking at the unfolding of events in the natural world and understanding the world as it is. Ordained as a monk at the Chunyang Taoist Temple in Gyangzhou, China, Yun Ro is a Taoist monk, author, and Tai Chi master. His award-winning books bridge spirituality, philosophy, and history, and his work has appeared across the globe, including in publications like Vogue, Vanity Fair, and the Wall Street Journal. Now living in Arizona, Monk Yun Ro teaches around the world, and in this conversation, he introduces us to Taoism as well as sharing some of his personal experiences of living as a Taoist monk in America. That means that the way to serve most effectively, most efficiently, most powerfully is to do the work on you, and then you'll see the results out in the world. Taoism, also known as Taoism, originated in China almost 2,000 years ago. And as Monk Yun Ro describes in this conversation, it centers on living in harmony with nature and with the substance of everything that exists. Nature is not an entity that exists outside of us as a teacher. It is a fabric of which we are an intimate part. Monk Yun Ro was born Arthur Rosenfeld in New York City, and he's received his academic education at Yale, Cornell and the University of California. He started his formal martial arts training in 1980 and has studied with some of China's top Tai Chi grandmasters. His name, Yun Ro, means soft cloud, and our conversation for this episode managed to go into beautiful depth about what it means to be a Taoist with all its layers, while still staying connected to a simplicity that's always at the heart of this podcast. If you see how the world works, you're a Taoist. That's it. With such a rich life journey so far, Monk Yun Ro has some incredible experiences to share with us. And this conversation opens us up to a galaxy of possibilities and potentials. So without any more description from me, it is my absolute honor to introduce you all to Monk Yun Ro. You asked me to introduce Taoism on one level, it is familiar to Western people as something else. Most people know a lot more about Taoism than they know that they know because of the Star Wars franchise. And it's pretty clear to those of us who study these things that George Lucas had an affinity for Eastern thought and that he drew upon the juxtaposition of Confucianism and Taoism, two threads in Chinese history to serve as the bases for the conflict in his universe. The empire, the jack-booted, white-clad, clone warrior, stormtrooper guys in their Death Star Inspired probably by the rigidity of Confucian society in China for thousands of years, that thing which has held Chinese culture together 
until the communists really. The juxtaposition with that is the bucolic revelers in the forest with their swords and their lightsabers and their Ewoks and the natural world and living bacchanalian lives, self-cultivating, meditating, having orgies, having parties, who knows. Less structure, more nature. That juxtaposition is at the core of a lot of Chinese culture. So when we say that the Tai Chi too, the yin-yang symbol, you know, the white fish and the black fish and all that, there is some passing familiarity with this philosophy. But I stop shy of calling it a belief system. There is a ritualized religious aspect to Taoism, which expresses as a folk religion and gives meaningful ritual to people who need that. But in its essence, Taoism is a science, not a belief system. It's a method for looking at the unfolding of events in the natural world and understanding the world as it is. So the Tao Te Ching, the most famous book in the Taoist pantheon, begins with the disclaimer that everything written here is not the real thing any more than the word moon is the moon. And I, the author, probably, by the way, also didn't exist, probably was a tea clatch of guys, you know, putting this text together and attributing it to an old master, which is what Lao Tzu means. He says right at the beginning, or they write at the beginning, we recognize that language is insufficient, but it's all we have. And the best we can do is write these words and try to convey an experience which can't really be conveyed by words. So right away, when we began this, I said I didn't see Taoism as a, as a belief system or religion, although I acknowledge that the ritual parts in which I became a monk have a religious function, but the core of it is experiential. And it's an inquiry into the way that nature works. And it requires no belief in anything supernatural because there is no concept of supernatural in philosophical branches of Taoism. All there is is a desire to better figure out how does the world really work and how can I have a good life in this world? What can I learn from the workings of nature that teaches me how to be? And when it comes to the concepts of good and bad, what does it mean to be a good person as a Taoist? We are uncomfortable with good and bad, because we know them to be constructs. And we want to be careful not to engage constructs to the detriment of clear vision. If we make up stuff, rather than seeing things as they really are, 
we're not doing ourselves or each other a favor. All that having been said, we have guidelines for living. We have the three treasures, compassion, humility, and frugality, which guide our actions. And those words, those concepts are, I think, accessible to a Western audience. They are recognizable values that people can connect to. But there's something else. The aforementioned Taiji Tu, the yin-yang symbol that everybody knows. And there are variations to it. Um, my own Taoist lineage doesn't link to the most typical one with the two fish, but to a little bit different one. But there are a few important things about that symbol. One is that one fish becomes the other fish. So where one trails off, the other one begins. And there's this interplay that's ongoing. A second obvious feature of the symbol is that the black fish has a white eye and vice versa, showing that there's a little bit of one opposite in, in the other. We use these to define the world. There's this constant exchange, one thing becoming the other. And there's this quality of one thing having the other as part of its essence. But there's a third thing that people miss a lot and don't talk about, which is that this whole thing is in a circle. And the purpose of the circle, the shape of the, of the yin-yang symbol, is to imply that this is not a still photo, but a movie. And it's moving all the time, changing all the time. So when we get into things like good and bad, we have to recognize that any such judgments or labels are subject to the laws of the universe, which is that they are exchanging places all the time. And that this very dynamic action of them taking each other's place and having a little bit of each other in them is much closer to the reality of the world than parables in Western books, stories of how we should or shouldn't behave, which are almost always like everything else in especially our modern culture, generated by people who don't have our best interests in mind. So we are being fed ideas about what's good and bad, work, 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 push, 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 exhaust yourself until you're ill, but be productive. You know, these kinds of poisonous, venomous ideas that have pervaded both Eastern and Western culture in the modern world, disasters that began with the agricultural revolution and moved on to the industrial revolution and digital age, were under constant attack by weapons of mass distraction that are trading on these ideas of good and bad. But the ideas of good and bad are not essential. They don't come from nature. And they don't come from the divine. They come from somebody who wants something from us. And it's not in our interest, but in their interest to believe that, to buy into that, and to live that way. And of course, you know, falling for all that is what has put us in this terrible place of having almost all but destroyed our home and constantly being on the brink of destroying each other. 
You mentioned the importance of nature and looking to it for lessons as such. Does that mean, do you look to nature as a teacher within Taoism? As soon as we go down this road, we've made a mistake. We sometimes have to go down this road, but we also have to acknowledge the mistake. Just like the book says, everything I'm about to say isn't the real thing. We're acknowledging it, but we're going to do it anyway because we don't have any choice. When we objectify and separate ourselves from nature and treat it as an entity, so Tao itself as a concept, Tao is not an entity. So it's not anything like an Abrahamic idea of God. Tao itself is an elusive concept. In Taoism, when we talk about Tao, not the Tao, but just Tao, we recognize that we can't separate it as a concept. And we don't want to separate us, ourselves, from nature, as in your question and what it implied, because nature is not an entity that exists outside of us as a teacher. It is a fabric of which we are an intimate part. If you see this non-dual, no us and them, understand why I objected to the idea of a belief system, because that, again, creates this opposition and apposition that isn't how we see the world. When I see a mosquito and he's drawing my blood, and my instinct is to swat him and squish him and leave a little smear, I'm, I'm often stopped from that action, not by the thought, but by the direct perception that its little legs, its little feet are stuck in the same fabric in which I am stuck, that we are of a piece and that damaging that fabric damages me. That it's, it's not that the distinction between Monk and Sarah is an illusion, it doesn't actually exist, as is the distinction between Monk and Mosquito. And if you actually have this view, and I want to make clear that when I say view, I don't mean this belief system or this way of looking at things. I mean, if you have this vision, if that's what you see, just as clearly as you see, you know, a book on the shelf or a, a statue in the background or a sword, then that has a direct impact on how you understand the world and on how you behave and on something which seems of interest to you in this podcast, which is on your moral structure and your values. And being a Taoist monk, how do you find living in Western culture, living in America, and yet practicing this different way of life? How is that? Is there some discomfort to that for you? I'm not sure that one can any longer say that this is a function of East-West. If you'd asked me this 10 years ago, I might have said, well, there's this age-old energetic tradition which has the East dominated by its belly and the West dominated by its head. 
one by intuition and the other by intellection, and that the world has always needed the balance between the two. So China and the East have adopted more and more Western technologies and medicines. And in, in the West, we are more and more interested in Eastern ways of looking at things. Now that interplay between intuition and intellection has become very blurry. Taoism is probably the first organized systematic environmentalism that we know of. And this is not to disrespect the sort of animistic traditions of South Pacific Islanders of thousands of years ago, their understanding of the sea and the stars and the sharks and all that, nor that of Aboriginal tribes in the Amazon and other places, or shamanistic Neolithic traditions in proto-China and their understanding of the world. But just to say that in a, in a way that is codified that we can recognize in the West, in the modern world, Taoism was the first to sort of cohere ideas of balance and harmony and not overusing resources and protecting things. And the discomfort that I experience living in the West and seeing the speed and greed world and the wasting of resources and the embracing of ignorance aggressively. I'm not sure that all of that is really just American. It may be that it's less geographic and more temporal. I don't think that you would find less of a difference and a distance between natural wisdom and understanding of the world and what the reality concocted by our leaders is in other countries than you find in America. So yes, am I uncomfortable living with all that? I am, but I would be uncomfortable in other places too, because it's more about what's really happening to humankind and the planet than it is just America right now. And with everything that is happening in the world right now, the pandemic, climate change, we're living through a time of conflict. What would Taoist philosophy recommend for living a good life with these challenges or with these conflicts? One way of looking at the Taoist view, again, not a belief system because no supernatural element, but just watching nature unfold, including human nature. No difference. Nature is nature. You can see that we are, each of us, a rock that is daily dropped into the pond of our lives and our actions and our presence and our energy upon impact with the water sends out ripples to places we cannot necessarily predict and with an effect that we may not be able to control. So we act and then the universe around us responds. And one of the great joys of awakening the mind and actualizing your life is to become more and more sensitive to the effects of those ripples and their trajectories, to start to see them more clearly and understand the results of those actions better. And then maybe moderate or guide your behaviors so that the ripples have the effect that you want. 
And one of the guiding principles that we want in a Taoist life is effortlessness and power. So we want to have a positive effect on the world, but we want to have it in the laziest possible way. And by lazy, I don't mean that we want to kick up our shoes and, you know, watch the ball game and eat chips. I'm talking about relaxed and effective because we have peeled away the layers that obscure our clear vision of the world. We have broken our bad habits and things that drag us down, and that we function purely and effectively because of how clearly we can see. And we don't waste any energy so we don't get exhausted. So we have minimum effort, but maximum positive effect on the world around us. Where do you look for guidance on what that positive effect could or should be? The more carefully you watch yourself and the world, the more that guidance is provided. But the biggest and most overarching thing is this news flash. It's not about you. So there's a bit of irony to that because I just got done saying, well, we're this rock and we drop you know, in the middle. And so the rock is, that's where you do the work is on the rock. In that sense, it is about you because that's where you can do the work. But the ultimate purpose and goal is not about the rock. It's about the effects of the ripples and the connection between the rock and the pond and the rest of the world and everybody else and all sentient beings. So if you can understand the seemingly initial dichotomy between focusing on yourself, but not in a selfish way, but just recognizing that that's where you have the power to do the work. And trusting that in doing that work, you will have a beneficent effect on the world. But that doesn't mean it's all about you. That means that the way to serve most effectively, most efficiently, most powerfully, is to do the work on you. And then you'll see the results out in the world. So that's what it means when I say it's not all about you. As we can't know all of the consequences of our actions, are there any ways? We can try to take good action and try to have positive effects. In, in Taoist thinking, there's a bigger challenge sometimes in figuring out what the compassionate act is than in doing it. Sometimes it's just not that clear because we have this idea, da Tao Xing, which means the Tao is big. And if you're looking at the world and you want to understand something, particularly a conflict, you dial out your zoom lens until you're no longer looking at the tip of your nose or your argument with your friend, but rather, you know, the whole room, then your apartment, then your building, then your city, your country, continent, and finally, the little blue floating marble in space we call Earth, 
And you keep on dialing out and dialing out until you see the whole galaxies and cosmos. And when you're doing that, then a lot of this other stuff, that conflict and what's right and wrong, kind of just falls away as constructs that don't have a lot of meaning. In preparation for this interview, I read some of your writing on Taoism, and one term that really struck me was wuji, I believe, about this serene state where we can practice um, qigong, meditation, things that help us achieve this state of being. Can you describe a bit more about that to us? In the Abrahamic or Western cosmogony, we see in the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible, a description of how the world came into being. Out of nothingness, God created heaven and earth. And the presence of an agent there, a creator. The Taoist cosmogony bears some superficial resemblance to that story. But there is no creator present in the story. Rather, inherent in the system, inherent in nature, is a self-organizing principle to create these opposing forces, heaven and earth, with man in the middle, humankind in the middle. When those opposing forces arise from the void, the void they arise from is called wuji, W-U-J-I. And I have defined this, for lack of better terminology, as emptiness pregnant with infinite possibility. Everything is about to happen, but nothing has happened yet. The whole thing, what in the West we call heaven and earth, and what in the East is called the 10,000 things, which just means everything, is about to burst forth and polarize into these opposing forces, yin and yang. Yin, typically soft and female, moist and quiet. Yang, bright and male and loud and dry. The harmonious dance between yin and yang that arises from that emptiness of wuji as a result of the self-organizing quality of the universe. That harmonious interplay is called Tai Chi, which is where the martial art of Tai Chi Chen gets its name. So that means that the martial art Tai Chi Chen, which just people often just call Tai Chi, the name means martial art based on the way the universe works. So when we talk about how to live, the more we can perceive this dance between yin and yang, between opposites changing, each one becoming the other, and get in step with that process, the more effective and less effortful our life will be. As you've mentioned this deeper meaning and stepping out to gather a new view, I wanted to ask you about something you shared with me before we started recording. You shared an experience you've had this year linked to your health and about a vision. Would you be happy sharing some of that with the listeners? I feel like the event that you asked me about is a personal 
one, but I'm happy to share the broad strokes of it. Climate change has worldwide created a rise in mostly subtropical and tropical fungal infections, more rain, more humidity, more, more fungus. And there is an endemic fungus here in southern Arizona in the States that affects thousands of people every year, but most people don't get terribly sick from it. But some very tiny percentage of people uh, who are unfortunate get a very serious problem from this fungus and it enters their brain, which is what happened to me. Anyway, I got sick and this disease is not curable. So, you know, I guess it's sort of like other chronic and eventually fatal conditions that many people live with, you know, every day. And you, you just accept that you're not going to get better, but you're trying not to get worse. So I'm living with this thing. And, you know, sometimes it flowers and creates problems. And a few months ago, I had a flowering of it and I was found pretty much dead. Uh, and revived. And I spent some time in hospital and unconscious. And during that time, I had a, um, a journey, a vision. One of the features of this vision for me was that it was curated. And that was quite notable. I'd never had an experience like that before. And I had glimpses of some of the insights that I got from this vision after many, many hours of meditation in part of my thousands and thousands of hours of training in meditation. But those glimpses would be just that. They would be very brief. This was an extended and sustained experience that went on for days. And when I say it was curated, it begs the question, you know, who was curating it or what was curating it? And the answer is, I don't know. There was a sense that I was being shown things as if I were visiting a museum. And someone was showing me things that they chose for me to see as opposed to other things. But perhaps regrettably, you know, there was no Buddha there, no Lao Tzu there, no Taoist masters, no Chinese landscapes. I, I would love to tell you that I saw that, but it was more universal and zooming through the cosmos and so on. Anyway, and at the end, I mentioned to you that I saw what is in store for organic life on Earth and for humankind. And I didn't much care for what I was being shown. And I pushed back against that vision of the future. And the message I got when I pushed back was a bit of tough love. Sorry, buddy. It really doesn't matter what, what you think about it. Right? It's not about you. I've had some time to reflect on that vision and on that future that I was shown and to revise my knee-jerk reaction to it. And I see it in the context of a removal of suffering. And I think that I have become very much a better monk as a result of this experience. And, you know, part of this training for tens of thousands of hours of physical and mental training over years has led me to certain abilities, which I don't often discuss because they're not the important things. But, you know, the abilities to see sometimes, to heal, to foresee. 
And those abilities have ramped up a bit, but I don't get that as the main event. What I get from the main as the main event is greater sensitivity and compassion, which has the effect of drawing more people to me and having them treat me differently and listen to what I have to say if I have anything to say. But just in their interactions with me, I find almost no resistance now, whereas I used to find resistance, maybe as a result of how I express things or energetic reasons. And that has shifted a lot. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Um, You speak about the many hours of training that you've had. You're a Taoist monk. There's been so much work on your journey. Have you had any moments of doubt or uncertainty on the path you've taken? At one stage, you know, fairly early, I developed very strong healing abilities and the abilities to see things that were wrong with people and fix them. And I was very startled by this and made quite uncomfortable, Um, you know, hands-on healing uh, of a dramatic sort. And I went to my teacher and I asked his counsel. And he said, oh, yeah, that happens. Sometimes, you know, people have certain qualities and those qualities are enhanced by the training. So your Kung Fu brother over there you know, is kind of a tough guy. And one of his things is that now he's physically invulnerable and he could put a spear on his throat and bend it. And, you know, you are a sensitive and compassionate person. So, you know, you can sense what's wrong with people and give them healing energy. He said, but, you know, there's a passage in the, in the Tao Te Ching and the Lao which says, you know, my way is a straight and simple highway, but for some reason people like to get lost in the mountains. And my teacher looked at me and he said, you know, you, This is a sideshow for you. It's not your main path. And I I said, but 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 if I can actually, you know, help people like this, like what does it matter what my main path is? Isn't that doesn't that morally trump anything else? And he shrugged and he said, You can choose to stay stuck there for a while if you want. But I'm just telling you, as your teacher, that's not your, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. And that was a moral conundrum for me, which caused me, that was probably the greatest discomfort and doubt I felt that I can remember on the path, to abandon doing that, give it up. With everything that's going on right now, how do you stay focused and not become maybe disempowered by what's happening right now? So, you know, you you also ask me other questions that this pertains to in an important way, because when you mentioned climate change and we talk about the rise of tyranny and this kind of aggressive stuff, I feel like it's very easy, and climate change people talk about this, it's very easy to be overwhelmed and think, well, you know, this just the problem is just too great. There's nothing we can do. You know, it's we're past the tipping point, whatever that is, and We're going to warm by a few degrees centigrade and so on. That kind of feeling of disempowerment is very weakening to the spirit. And I think not entirely accurate. So we can take a story like this and a concept like the stone and go, look, you really can have effects that you don't anticipate and can't predict by your actions and that they can be much larger in effect 
than you might have believed possible. Trust that the effects of these kinds of ripples are unpredictable and far-reaching. So don't give up and assume that you know, your actions won't have an effect and they're not worth trying. And that I think is an empowering message when there are a lot of disempowering messages out there right now. And if there was one thing that you could recommend listeners went out and did today that would help them achieve this good life, help them be a good person, what would you recommend? Kindness, compassionate action. But as I mentioned before, sometimes what compassionate action is, is not clear. In other words, doing the right thing, the challenge could be not doing it, but figuring out what it is to do. So a really classic and simple and familiar example of this, which kind of drives me crazy and has for years, is the idea, the question of give a man a fish or teach him to fish. I've always felt that that is just an aggressively idiotic saying. Because in what world are we so limited and rigid and locked that we do not see that if somebody is hungry, right then and there, you feed them and then you teach them how to fish? What's wrong with doing both? Why does it have to be a binary choice? So I guess my parting thought on this is there's always a door number three to things. Years ago, I was in a line for coffee at Starbucks. And after I made my order, the guy behind me laid on his horn and yelled at his window, move up, you idiot. But I was in a line of cars and my bumper was, you know, four inches from the car in front of me. There was nowhere to go. And, you know, because I'm a great and enlightened master, my first thought was, well, Christmas is coming. I'm going to get out now and give him a holiday visit to the dentist. So I start, I start to get out of my car and I see his face in the mirror and he's all florid and angry. And I see my own face at the same time. And I, you know, I look just like him and I think, wow. So I think better of it and I close the door and I wait. And when I get up to the window to get my tea and pay, I say, you know, I'd like to buy the coffee for the guy behind me. There's this thing that was called Pay It Forward. It became a Hollywood film. And I guess I'm I'm the father of this thing, but I bought him his coffee. And and then I drove away thinking that I had taken this conflict and turned it into something else. And, you know, I was very happy. Some hours later, I get home and I find that my answering machine, we still had those back then, uh, at home is full of little messages and started listening to them. And they're from Starbucks, call me, Starbucks, call me, the manager of the Starbucks. And then keep listening, calls, calls, calls. And I get an, an NBC or ABC news reporter. And as I'm listening to the message, the reporter rings my phone. I pick it up. He says, oh, there you are. I want to come to your house. I said, what, what are you talking about? Who are you? Why? Why? He said, no, no, what you don't understand is that when you did that for him, he did it for the person behind him and the person behind him did it for them and on and on and on. This is the ripples in the pond. This is the dropping of the stone. I said, well, that that is interesting. He said, right. And that was eight o'clock and it's three in the afternoon now. And it's still going on. So I met him at the Starbucks and I explained to him about these three doors, right? Door number one, he honks and yells at me and I I get out of the car and punch him, you know, force against force. 
Door number two is he honks at me and yells, and I get out and I drop to the ground beside his car. And I say, you're right. I'm an idiot. You know, and that's, that's yielding. So the right response is a third one, a third door. And the third door is just defined as being not door number one and not door number two. It's a creative, perhaps unique response to any conflict or situation, which you only define as being not one and not two. All else goes. So when you ask me what somebody could do right now, today, right, is to explore door number three if a conflict arises in your day. See if you can figure out what is your door number three. And is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with people listening to this podcast? Sometimes people are Taoist without realizing that label or having heard it or know what it is. You don't have to be a Taoist monk to be a Taoist. And you don't have to be Chinese. And you don't have to engage martial arts or Taiji Chuen or Qigong or meditation. Those things aren't necessary. In fact, you can understand Taoism to some degree without ever knowing anything about the Chinese elements or its history. Because it's just looking at nature, it's just looking at the way things work and these truths, and this is why I said to you at the beginning that no belief system required. These truths are not made up stuff that we decide to cleave to. They are just the result of paying close attention to the unfolding of the natural world. If you see how the world works, you're a Taoist. That's it. You don't have to believe anything. Just look, watch carefully, and you will eventually come to this, not because all roads lead to China, but because this is just how things are. It's how things work. And it's just a description that was made by people who spent a lot of time looking, just like cosmologists and astronomers and natural historians do now. Taoists were just the early version of all those scientists looking at the world, trying to understand it. That's all. My deepest thanks to Monk Yun-Ro for taking the time to talk with me. If after listening to that conversation, you'd like to learn more about him or about Taoism in general, you can visit his website, monkyunro.com. And I'll add all links in the show description. M-O-N-K-Y-U-N-R-O-U, all one word, dot com. And that will lead to you know, many interviews like this one and YouTube and to Amazon for books and to classes and so on. And that's the easiest way. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more episodes and interviews exploring the question of what it means to be a good person in today's world, then please visit howtobegood.co.uk or subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. And if you'd like to support the podcast, then head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash explore goodness, and you can buy me a warm drink to help with the creation of these episodes. Thank you for listening. Please share with your friends. And if you have any questions or suggestions, email me at any time. It's sarah at howtobegood.co.uk. And I always love to hear from you. Thank you.